0: The Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to GSA on Aging. Welcome to the third installment of the Social Research Policy and Practice Health Sciences Collaborative Podcast Series focused on the crisis in long-term care. My name is Dr. Sarah Dice, and I work as a research associate at the Institute on Aging at Portland State University with a focus on assisted living and residential care populations. In this episode, we're going to be discussing how differential policies and impacts can bolster equity or ingrain inequity for direct care staff as well as consumers. To begin, our focus will be on two types of residential long term care nursing homes and assisted living settings. Nursing homes are federally regulated settings that provide 24 hour clinical care to their residents with minimum mandated staffing ratios as well as cost reporting. Assisted living settings are regulated at the state level and provide residents assistance with activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living and must maintain sufficient staffing to meet the 24 hour needs of residents, which differs depending on the state. These settings currently house and provide care to over 1 million residents in the United States. A recent report from PHI International estimates that of the approximately 4.5 million direct care workers currently working in the United States, over 700,000 work in assisted living and residential care homes, and about 580,000 nursing assistants are employed in nursing homes. The majority of the direct care workforce are women, 59% identify as Black, Hispanic, or Latine, Asian, Pacific Islander, or multiracial, and about one quarter of workers were born outside of the United States. Additionally, most direct care workers receive low incomes and often work more than one job. It's critical to understand the barriers and catalysts to sustaining and supporting the backbone of long-term services and supports, our direct care workforce, as more older adults and people with disabilities require services offered by nursing home and assisted living settings. I am joined today by Dr. Anna Song-Bieber, Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Faculty Development at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, and Dr. Tara McMullen, Associate Director, Opioid Safety at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Central Office. We'll be discussing how state and federal policies provide opportunities and challenges to addressing the staffing crisis in long-term care. Welcome, Anna and Tara. Uh, If you could please introduce yourselves for us. Hey, I'm
1: Anna. It's nice to be here. And, you know, my research is really based on the improving the quality of care in long-term care settings, including related to workforce issues, as well as nursing care for older adults.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Tara. So excited to be here with Anna and Sarah and talking about this topic. And my research largely is based on policy and quality improvement and quality measures. And I do look at the workforce specifically certified nurse aides and what quality means for certified nurses through the lens of policy. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for being here today. So, we know that issues related to supporting our long-term care workforce existed way before the COVID-19 pandemic started. Mm-hmm. But can we start off with how COVID-19 exacerbated the staffing crisis in long-term and community-based care?
1: I think that we really in general, we knew that the if we talked about these, these workers and ways in terms of working two jobs and the health disparities, you know, Sarah, you gave a really great introduction in terms of who these workers are that are in our long-term care settings. But we also need to think about the health of these workers and just try to put ourselves in the shoes of who these workers are and what their day-to-day lives are. And then try to add the what it would be like to be in the COVID pandemic and the risk of what that would be like to not only be putting yourselves at risk, but think about what it would be like to be at home, um, being either a caregiver for your family members, or if you think about having children in school or what it would be like to have kids at home or out of school as well as when you think about what it's like to be a low-wage worker and working multiple jobs, these are workers that are working in multiple care settings. So they might be working in two nursing homes or two assisted living communities and what that might look like. It just magnified the risk. So these workers were putting themselves at risk. And sometimes we saw that they this risk just wasn't worth it. And plus, they didn't have the supports they needed to be able to keep their families safe. And so not only were people getting sick in their workplace, more so than they would have been putting themselves at risk in the day-to-day, say back injuries or regular injuries that you would be as a care aide, But then they were actually putting themselves at risk for an illness that we we had um, really no, we didn't know what it was. and, And it was very, obviously very scary for everyone else. And so I think that that fear, as well as just how um, detrimental it was for certain populations, that that just um, magnified it, as well as this is a, a worker population that really cares about our older adults. So this idea that to be kind of the transmitter, potentially, of COVID-19 that could potentially kill our, our residents. Was re- really stressful. It was stressful for for all all staff, and so I think that staff were really coming together. But it was just magnified, especially for these low income workers, that I think was really challenging. And that is something that was universal across, I would say, across assisted living and nursing home. And, and ta- Tara, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure you probably have comments about that as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The COVID-19 public health emergency had a profound effect on all settings of care, especially nursing homes and assisted living settings. And I do think that the crisis itself was bolstered by factors uh, related specifically to staffing. I know in nursing homes, specifically staffing shortages. And undoubtedly, I think a lot of the the crisis, the gaps, the major breaking points that were seen existed prior to COVID. And I think COVID just brought that right out, really uh, uncovered a lot of the fragmented healthcare system and the facets related to that. It really was a breaking point, especially for nursing homes and assisted living settings. And, you know, in looking at like, Anna, what you were talking about staffing, to me, when I think about COVID-19 and what COVID, that public health emergency brought out, it was All related to staffing and the need for uh, support for the nursing home workforce to be able to provide that integrated, comprehensive, safe team-based care. Um, CNAs uh, specifically being a CNA has is a job that's been described as the most dangerous job in America. um, That specifically came out in the media, and I think a lot of that is attributable to, and research has shown that that's attributable to, and continues to be. Um, related to support, the lack of support and resources necessary to perform the job safely, efficiently, effectively. And I also think that links back to competitive wages and benefits, uh, the need for more comprehensive training, um, just security overall. And um, I think that's highlighted a lot of what researchers and advocates have been saying about the need to secure this workforce to create career ladders to ensure that they have incentives that you know tenure is there because of the incentivized part of the workforce so critical staffing shortages definitely were exacerbated because of COVID 19 and it's it's a big deal because it affects not only staffing workforce in general but it affects the residents and and the individuals who are receiving care from that staff and I, i also think it affects mainly outcomes of safety and communication And asks policymakers and researchers or whatnot, what can we do to help support residents and staff in these settings, especially through regulation and thinking through new models of team-based care and things like that, for sure.
0: And along that vein, both of you have highlighted how despite incredible odds um, and really tragic circumstances, we have folks that Take a lot of pride in the care that they are providing to residents of these settings. Um, Has the pandemic resulted in any promising practices or silver linings related to, you know, intervening on this workforce crisis?
1: I I would say so. You know, I think um, I think that there has what I've seen is some of the most creativity come out of um now even from from the assisted living side so it could be we can call it owners or operators or administrators you know from from the even from the very small um kind of mom and pop shops all the way to some of the larger corp- more corporately owned assisted living communities out there that there's just um from the owner side that there is um more incentives there's ways of just being more creative in terms of thinking about the worker what they need um thinking about what beyond just raising thinking about pay and benefits to what what do workers need all the way to uh, finding what is really important in people, in the individual worker's day to day to in really understanding what would Uh, individual worker what do they enjoy what what types of things do they find fulfillment in their work because to be able to do this type of work with older adults and have these long-term relationships um, in these long-term care settings takes a unique individual because it is as is as it is that kind of um, it is about long-term relationships but it's also a lot of physical work um, and and so there is a very particular person who does that type of work and finds it fulfilling in a very different way. Um, we do find that some of these settings are in smaller communities and so you might be caring for your friend's aunt or uncle or you know it, it is about being part of the community as well. And so we've seen um, these assisted living communities really being able to tap into the local community and so, We've just found a lot of promising practices in terms of not just um, ways of incentivizing things from an owner-operator perspective, but then also on the other end, use of technology in brand new ways, as well as ways that residents and families can stay connected. Because the work that I do in particular around resident and family engagement, um, that we've really seen that that came um, very clearly through the pandemic. And we're seeing that carry forward um, outside of the, well, we're not really out of the pandemic, but it's really, um, we're finding brand new ways that that people are really able to stay connected. And if you think about engagement and care, this is a brand new way for us to be delivering care. Um, and, I, and I think that if we can start to see this as some of the positive things that are coming out of this, I think that we can start to think about new ways to plan care as well as um, think about engagement, which is um, really important.
2: Yeah, I love that, Anna. I also, I love that that focus on engagement and communication and what has been done to, to basically increase, you know, that, that bi-directional exchange, being human is what I think, being human. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think about what that, what, how, as a, as someone who's, who works in policy, how that came out in the federal sense, in the state sense, based in these policy efforts, um, if, if anything, this pandemic really pushed forward this idea of how do you communicate without being able to communicate one-on-one in that exchange and what does that mean for healthcare and speaking from that policy lens, what I saw as some of these you know, interventions or what has increased in a positive way has been the use of uh, telehealth and telecommunications specifically. Right now I work in specialty care and we developed a telepain program and and reaching out to individuals um, who were in these settings who were isolated um, to increase communication and increase um, uh, service uh, and intervention I thought was really interesting and how policy played out in that area. and um, now how, you know, people are going back to in-person visits and what policy means for that. That's been a really interesting dynamic to see over the last two, two and a half years. And seeing how the states have taken the reins in terms of policy and have moved ahead of the federal government in some senses and have been promoting um, different models of team-based care, uh, different community efforts um, to increase communication or you know, outreach to individuals in these settings, residents, and, um, and uh, promoting different incentive structures has been a really interesting task as I've never seen policy work so fast, policymaking efforts for direct intervention. And I thought that just from the lens of a policymaker or a researcher, that's been a really interesting phenomenon to not only be a part of, but to witness um, from many different perspectives and lenses.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think it's also important to sort of understand, we're talking about the direct care workforce, you yeah. know, as yeah. uh, as a population, but there are subsects. Um, these folks work in different types of settings. So I think it would be nice to hear from you both about, you know, the staffing comparisons between assisted living and nursing homes particularly in terms of the the regulatory requirements um, across these settings. I don't know, Tara, would you like to start? (laughs) Yeah, I might have a little bit more to say than
2: Anna. (laughs) I'm not going to give too much away for Anna here, but nursing homes are obviously very regulated (laughs) in some aspects and under-regulated in other aspects. Um, One of the most regulated settings, in fact, working as a federal worker, we know nursing homes are right up there with... um, uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear regulations in terms of the number of regulations we have, believe it or not. So, um, but basically, uh, nursing homes or nursing facility settings are uh, uh, are dictated by federal regulation for the most part. Um, asking staff to provide licensed nursing services 24 hours a day with a registered nurse providing at least eight consecutive hours of care seven days a week. And um, a lot of this uh, work dictates the staff load and the minimum staffing requirements. And um, uh, specifically, OBRA87 um, asks that there is 24-hour nursing services that provide sufficient staff, and it puts sufficient in quotes, because that has been an argument for a long time for why that needs to change. Sufficient is really vague, and uh, it's not too clear. And a lot of research has shown that minimum staffing out of that one that one policy, that one law, minimum staffing requirements uh, vary and uh, they need a lot of attention nationally. Also, a lot of uh, requirements um, that are governed by the federal government, specifically some of the agencies within HHS, specifically centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, um, dictate practice and training. And, that, and those are the code of federal regulations that um, dictate the number of hours that say certified nurse aides are trained and are trained up basically uh, before they can provide care in a, a facility. And out of the federal regulations of OBRA 87, um, that sufficient staff, sufficient staff, meaning really falls into minimum staffing requirements for registered nurses and LPNs and LBNs and again, certified nurse aides and speaks to how facilities can account for resident assessments and care plans and, um, there's a whole kind of runoff of how quality is collected and reported and controlled um, based on those st- uh, minimum staffing ratios. And again, because of that federal federal regulation and the nature around that federal regulation, there's a lot of variation in minimum staffing requirements. And um, a lot of researchers and associations have completed numerous studies about nursing home staffing standards because of those federal regulations. And it's, it's just an important note that as of even very recent, the last few months, even that the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services are, are now taking an approach to determining minimum level and like um, appropriate min- minimum staffing levels um, to enable better quality outcomes. But Obviously, that goes back 40 years to over 87, so that's that's kind of a summary. There are uh, way more regulations to speak to than that. It really depends on the topic, honestly, um, but kind of, like, since we're talking about staffing, that's kind of the purview is the uh, code of our federal regulations and the uh, uh, regulations and laws that emerge as, like, logical outgrowth out of over 87.
1: Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> In terms of assisted living, I think um, it's not nursing homes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think it's not that. Um, so it's not twenty four hour a day skilled nursing care. You know, and um, so assisted living is is regulated by individual states, um, and so it's another option for getting some long um long term care um for older people um and younger people really but what what it is is it's not the skill level nursing care that you'd be getting in the nursing home. Um how that's carried out is very different. So if you look at the staffing, um it the primarily the staff that you find in assisted living is primarily care aides. Now that may be CNAs or it could be unlicensed aides. And that depends on what state that you're actually in. Um, so you can, um, if you find a nurse in there, um, they're, they could be an LPN, a licensed practical nurse or a licensed vocational nurse, you might find a registered nurse in there, but it doesn't have the same requirements for nursing care that you would find in a nursing home. Um, And so, but the interesting thing is, is that oftentimes depending on when you walk into an assisted living, um, sometimes it may look like to an average person, it may look like a nursing home. You may see a, med cart, or you may see a person wearing scrubs. And to, so to the average consumer, it may look similar, you know, um, depending on the layout, but there are some places that you walk in there and it's very homey and it just looks different than a nursing home. And so that can be very confusing. Um, and I think that that, that can be, that can be a draw for, for family um, who's looking for care for, for their family member is that it is very different from nursing homes. And there's some that, that may look a little more nursing home-like. Um, and so I think that that can be very confusing. But the thing about assisted living is that it's not regulated like nursing homes. Um, there isn't that intense nursing care that's being provided. Um, there, there is not that requirement. Um, there is not the same level of regulation it will vary state by state. So assisted living in North Carolina is different than what you would see in Maryland versus Portland, Oregon. Um, And there, it may look like board and care homes with only six residents all the way up to these larger communities that have hundreds of residents, right? So it it looks very different. Um, And it is very focused on, you know, more on the personal care needs of the individual and it's being provided by, Um, primarily the workforce is care Um, And so that looks a little bit different. Now, in a given state, there can be nurses in there providing care. And so that's where Hmm. from a family resident, you know, older person, consumer perspective, that can be very confusing for them. And that's some of the work that I do is like, we need to get information out to the public about what are some of the differences among these types of services because not everyone knows the difference between what they're getting when they go into assisted living versus a nursing home. Um, But I think that that is, um, that can be some of the challenges if you're trying to find services for an older person is that um, some, you know, you have some of these, these, these long-term care services that may look similar, but they, they are offering very different things. Yeah.
0: And I think it's interesting because, you know, in nursing homes, you do have this expectation that there is 24-hour, you know, acute clinical care available. Um, Even though that's not a mandate in assisted living, uh, there are residents who live in these settings who do have, who or who can have severe health-related needs. Yeah. Um, Is there well, I'm sure there is a difference, but I'm wondering if either of you could speak to, you know, what does an RN or an LPN or a CNA um, if they're working in an assisted living setting, what's the difference between working in an assisted living setting and working in a nursing facility given their licensure and ability to provide care? Oh, that's
1: a <laughs> Anna, this
2: one's good. Well, CNAs, well, we should say Anna, right? CNAs are not licensed. Right. That's right. the first, so, that's okay. the first thing. Yeah. CNAs yeah. are not licensed yet, but anyway. yeah.
1: So, um, so this is the, um, it depends on what state you're in. Yeah. Yep. So my answer is it depends. Okay. Right. Um, every state has different regulations about delegation, about what, and, um, it really depends on whether a registered nurse can delegate um, other care practices to other people or other staff in a facility, um, whether they have, whether they are the only one that can provide a service or whether they can quote delegate it to others. Um, and really what that means is this is if, um, they can delegate something and, and let really have others, um, being able to be kind of their extension. Right. Um, and, and I'm probably oversimplifying it a bit, but that's really what, what we're talking about here. Um, and I think, um, not to get too far into the weeds, but the, there's a lot of variation state by state in terms of how that works. Um, and what you'll see in assisted living, um, state by state is it's not that it's about what staff are doing what, but what types of services nurses are allowed to provide in assisted living. Um, and so you'll see that there might be more um, extensions of services being provided in assisted living from one state to the next, um, and that there might be um, more commonalities. I'm trying to figure out how to say this, that there might be um, more more services being provided by the nurses in one state, let's say, um, and more restriction on staff in another. Okay. So that, uh, or that there might be, um, let's say, more restriction on staff in assisted living. It'll be very narrow what types of services can be provided by staff in assisted living in one state versus another. And, you know, that's just. How the state regulations work. But um, what's most important is that's just how the how assisted living functions. What's very confusing is if I'm a caregiver and I live in North Carolina and I'm trying to find assisted living for my parent who lives in Connecticut, I can't, I might not understand what assisted living even is in another state. That's where it gets confusing, right? Uh, is that it could be a totally different thing <laughs> in uh, terms of what types of services assisted living is. And I'm kind of, I'm making, I'm I'm trying to make a point that when it's regulated state by state, it's kind of bloomed into the regulations have kind of made it bloom into what the state has made it into, right? So you as an individual consumer have to do a lot of homework to understand what assisted living is and what it, yeah. what what types of services my mom can get when they're in assisted living. And I also have to understand when mom starts to get needing more services, when is she starting to exceed what her assisted living community can provide, right? If she needs wound care and all of a sudden I'm super surprised that they can't change her dressing. And why would I think that they can't do a wound care? Yeah. You know, that's what happens. That's what happens on the day to day is all of a sudden the family members get super surprised that the person that's standing there with scrubs can't change a dressing on twice a day. Yeah. They're like, you're wearing scrubs. What do you mean you can't change a dressing? Well, I'm not yeah. a nurse. What do you mean you're not a nurse? You know, so that's the sort of thing that happens. And it's because there is a lack of understanding of what people can and can't do. And... Some of that is just because no one understands who's doing what or what these, what the scope of practice is of the people that are providing care in these settings. And I think nursing homes are very clear because there's nurses there to do the care. Yeah, um, And assisted living just can be very confusing for people. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of where we're at.
2: Yeah. Nursing homes have a clear structure and that's based on that regulatory, that federal premise even though it's kind of vague and uh, needs to be updated within itself. And where I find there's kind of um, similarities, Anna is in your discussion of the unlicensed individuals, the nurse aides and the variation between the states. And a lot of where I zero in is this idea of scope of practice for CNAs and how CNAs function. And so obviously you have the code of federal regulations that does dictate training for CNAs. It also dictates like a lot of that day to day practice. Uh, what can, uh, that delegation basically, um, that from the RN to others, uh, for the day to day care and management of the nurse aid. Um, a lot of where my research has gone is, but what does that mean for the CNA and how can you expand what the CNA can do? Um, scope of practice is obviously a legal term. It's given to people who are licensed and CNAs don't have a license and they don't have a regulated scope of practice. So when you're talking about basic levels of care to manage care needs, you're looking at the CNA, but there is that, well, why can't they do that? Why can't they do more? Because CNAs, those individuals who are not licensed, they are capable of doing more. They can do more. And right now the Code of Federal Regulations obviously Says, hey, you can train 75 hours. You're going to learn personal care. You're going to learn social service needs. You're going to learn basic mental health. You're going to learn basic nursing care. But we know that, and you know, there's there's variation across the states with that variation about how those hours are interpreted. Whether there's more hours for training or less hours. We know states actually have less hours. We know about 20 or more have more hours based on the code of federal regulations for what CNAs can do and how they're trained up. But there's always that, you know, idea of, um, well, when the CNA leaves their workplace and they go home, they're doing more. They're capable of doing more. They can open that medication bottle. They can actually communicate to their family or to others what's going on with other family members. There's that communication. and. And then supporting that care coordination. So I think um, this idea of variation is a huge moving gap. And I think it creates, it really supports that fragmented healthcare system. And when thinking about, you know, staffing models and um, what we're doing in the nursing home, I think we need to really zero in on training curricula. And the need for expansion of training hours or at least, uh, the expansion of core competencies of some of those unlicensed personnel in assisted living and nursing home settings. I think there it would, it would equate so many good positive outcomes if, uh, federal state legislation was to support some of those efforts. But the one thing, Anna, I think between AL and nursing home that you find that relationship with, especially with the unlicensed workers is the fact that every state is taking it taking training or what they could be delegated or what they're allowed to do on in different ways. And I think, I think it is confusing. I think it's confusing. Yeah. And I think it creates, um, at least for like federal policymakers, it creates this confusion of like, how do we fix that? What right, evidence think, do we need to fix that?
1: Well, what you're asking a nurse to do when you're delegating, I mean, you're asking them to say, I am having someone perform a test. Exactly. So I'm ultimately responsible, And they that. may
2: be absolutely reluctant to do that because, right. yeah, it's on them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Because, because if there's it, this uncertainty the that if, they can do it.
1: Yeah. Right. If the system itself, let's say short-staffed the entire place. Yes. And I'm, as the single nurse in a given Uh facility, ultimately responsible for the outcome. I may not be comfortable with that. You know, there's a whole host of things. It totally makes
2: sense, Anna, especially with states. We know that there are a handful of states that actually require less than 75 hours for training for CNAs. We know that. Research has shown that. How would someone like Anna, a nurse like Anna be comfortable delegating that out. There's such a a range of uncertainty. There's a constellation of factors in that. So I think it's about time that you know law starts requiring clinical hours, you know, And, and I think that does I don't want to say legitimize the position. I don't. I think that's inappropriate. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but it does create that incentive. And no, that's no. Really I think.
1: that. what we're what we're representing, Sarah, I think, is kind of this tension that's at play. You know, and yeah. I think the complexity of of the of what's at play, and so I think if listeners can understand just the complexity of what's going on state by state in assisted living. Uh mm-hmm. huh. And if you're trying to make sense of the differences between um, assisted living and nursing homes, or if you're trying to make sense of if you ever want to understand the differences of the, you know, the, the differences in assisted living regulations around staffing from state by state, or you're trying to help a family member or a friend understand why assisted living might be different from state by state, this is where this is coming from. Um, it's, it's because I, the, the intent is not to be difficult. The intent is actually to protect people. I really believe at the core that there's an intent around safety and protecting people. Uh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. And absolutely. trying to do best, you know, um, and, you know, at, at the, at the intent, you know, around protect around nursing practice, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. These, these regulations are in place because we're trying to keep people, there's an intent to keep people safe. Um, it's just that these two, case, you know, these two cases side by side are fascinating <laughs> in a lot of ways. They, they share a lot of
2: similarities and they don't. And I think, I mean, you're right. It is all about the person, the keeping the person and the resident at the center. It is about them, but it's also about the staff, you know. For so long, we have been saying if you allow a CNA or whatever position, uh, the ability to work it with more expanded tasks for which they could adequately be trained for, we know we can train them that will optimize care that may, you know, prevent adverse outcomes, adverse events from happening in these settings as care is being given. And we would find a way to capture that and demonstrate that more than we can now. And yeah, Sarah, what you're hearing is this is a really loaded topic that, I mean, Anna, I think honestly, COVID brought this out. Like, I really think this was here. And I think COVID really kind of lit the top, lifted the top off of that and said now it's we really have to focus on this because we can't. Continue with these staffing shortages if another major crisis happens and we don't have anyone to provide that care, then what are we going to do? You have to train them and incentivize
0: them. So there's a lot of layers here from a uh, policy <laughs> and <onion. laughs> regulatory standpoint, exactly, yeah, just like an yeah. onion. Yeah, um, yeah. And we know th- this complexity, the variation, the heterogeneity. Um, we know that that's not going away. The population of people who are using these settings and and needing these services is only increasing. Um, We need to maintain and support the existing workforce in addition to growing it. So I guess the million dollar question is given these layers of complexity is what would real reform look like?
2: Oh, my
0: favorite question
2: ever. I mean, oh, to me, more has to be done legislatively to support workforce enhancement. It's it's not a question of when, it's, it's that it has to happen now. And uh, that includes improving training standards, uh, to me, expanding the code of federal regulations to revise those minimum hours for training and competency requirements and providing opportunities for growth within the profession I think that there's um there's a um, there's a whole continuum there and it's linked and I think when we talk about expanded training I think I'm talking specifically to going beyond what's in that code of federal re- federal regulations to add in training for more specialized education such as trauma-informed care and education on elder abuse and Alzheimer's disease and um, different gerontological interventions and and whatnot, everything. And I also think that federal lawmakers and state lawmakers should look at the authorized duties of unlicensed personnel, CNAs. Uh, Unlicensed personnel is is not always uh, a welcomed term, but the certified nurse, the direct care worker, and um establish a scope of practice for them why not if we talk about career ladders for advancement there's no other way i don't think that you know policy efforts can fully support the expanse uh, the expansion of that um, um and i think that also would allow for more models of team based care to to expand as the cna can be an active member in in that and uh, two other points. I think it's really important to amend these minimum staffing requirements. They line right up to it. Um, and I do believe that federal agencies can go ahead and begin to do that. They have the authority to do that. HHS does. And I and I support that if HHS cannot move forward with it, then there needs to be other action around that. And I do think that real reform looks like livable wages, um, comprehensive benefits, and paid leave. and I feel like I'm kind of throwing everything in. But as been um, shown with the recent NASA report, if not now, when? Because with the, with the gap, this kind of like this critical crisis, I think that um, these, uh, these facets of um, the staffing shortage are really showing through. These are, these are the direct links into change. And I think that federal policy could clearly support this change today. And um, I think that's what real reform looks like, truly. With the states, the agencies on the federal government, the states and the agencies of the federal government.
0: And what do you think?
1: So, um, we, it's interesting because I don't think that we can talk about our workforce without talking about just what the trend that we've seen in terms of our great resignation across everything. <laughs> um, and it's actually a phenomenon that we're seeing i think there's some evidence about whether this actually had to do with the pandemic or people reassessing their lives in general i think everyone is reassessing their lives um every industry is has been affected i mean we there there are restaurants that are understaffed you know you go to um there Every industry, um, people are resigning from jobs. They're, every type of worker has everything has been affected by um, this idea of work has to be different in some way, um, and I think that we can't just isolate this setting from what's happening in the larger world of of what's going on with workers. We have to treat teachers differently um, as well as these other industries. And so um, we're going to have to reassess how we think about these workers, um, what we pay them, um, how their day-to-day work life is, um, who these workers are, And how we treat them in their workplace, as well as, um, how we incentivize them, um, or we're not going to be able to find them. (laughs) Um, and I think that's just the way it's going to be. And as this population is growing, we know it's growing. It's already here. We just aren't going to have, we know we don't have enough people to take care of them. And this is, this is going to be magnified. Um, and I, I, I don't see this as changing. Um, And I still think that even as we start to do research and we create community alternatives Mm -hmm. to long-term care, there will still be a portion of our population that will still need nursing homes and still need these long-term care services. Mm -hmm. Um, I really hope we have a day that we won't have to have older people in long-term care settings. But I do think that there's still a portion of a population that will still need to be in these settings. And I want them to be the highest quality and best places for these older people. And I want them to have workers that want to be there. And I want them to get the highest quality nursing care. And I want the workers to be treated well. And I want them to be getting the highest quality care. That's what I want right? So that's my goal. Um, and so that's what I want to devote my work to. I want to teach students to be wanting to devote their work to that and I want to inspire others to be able to do that. So we need to be doing better because I still think there's going, and I want, you know the GSA to be inspiring others to be doing that work because there's still going to be a portion of our population that's going to be in these settings no matter what, because they're going to have such high care needs that they're going to need our help. So we have to be solving these problems while we're coming up with these community alternatives. And, and I think that that's really important because we need the policy piece. We need, we need to make the, 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 um, we need to make the, the work is going to be hard, but we can also make the, the other parts better for them too. I don't, you know, they shouldn't have to be working two jobs. <laughs> we should we should make pay great, you know. Yeah, and I, may, yeah, I know that sounds really simple, time. yeah. But you know, I think there are a lot of things that um, you know people like at PHI and others. They have very clear goals for how how they they can make this better. And I think that there's policy around how the workforce can be better. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's that's where we should be starting.
0: Continuing the conversation encouraging creativity and making the future better together. Thank you both. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Anna, for your time and expertise today. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit Geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit GERON.org.